Well, what a joy it is to be here with you. If you've got your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 20 to 28. Thank you so, so much. Matthew 20, 20 to 28. You should know that across all of our campuses today, we're really pressing into um, this whole value of servanthood. And um, so no matter where a person may be, if they're part of the Summit family, uh, they're going to hear about servanthood uh, this weekend. And I uh, thought I would continue that theme and jump right into it. Um, it's, uh, it's just a great joy. It doesn't it doesn't get better than what we've just experienced. I mean, are you kidding me? To see people say yes to Jesus, to go from death to life, to publicly professing their faith uh, is just, it's just, it's, this is what we signed up for. So uh, really, really grateful. I'm really grateful that my wife and our youngest son, Jaden, is uh, with us today. Uh, they're, yeah. I won't make them stand up, but their flight from North Raleigh here landed on time, uh, and uh, it's just it's just so good. And then the the leadership that you all all have been entrusted with, Kanka and Jeremy and a host of others, uh, man, God has smiled and is smiling uh, on this congregation. Here now our text, Matthew twenty, beginning in verse twenty. Matthew writes, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So here we have the ten other disciples eavesdropping in on this conversation. Um, They're hearing these two other disciples say, Jesus, get us into the VIP section of your kingdom. And they are ticked. But Jesus called them to him and said, Hey, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as, referring to himself, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Will you pray with me? God, again, my heart is full. I am rejoicing, Lord God, um, out of all these baptisms, Lord God, that have happened today in between these two services. God, I I pray uh, that this important moment in the life of your children um, would not be forgotten. That in those moments where they are tempted to go the way of the world, they will think back to September 12th, 2021, and that this will just be a spiritual mile marker in their lives. I, I pray for more of this at this campus. That there would be more, that this is just a regular rhythm of people saying yes to you, people getting baptized. God, I ask it. 
Now, Father, would you speak to us about servanthood? I need to hear this myself. I think the natural gravitational pull of all of our hearts is we loved to be served. We love to be accommodated. We love to be catered to. And we don't like being inconvenienced. So, Father God, would you give us a a word full of grace and truth? Call us out. Inspire us. I pray that our Alamance campus would just lead the way in going to war with a consumer culture and modeling what true servanthood in the ilk of Jesus Christ looks like. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I love it. You can say that as much as you want to me, young man. Several years ago, our family, uh, we were in New York City. We had just moved there. Um, I am, uh, in fact, later on this afternoon, I got to drive out to Greensboro because uh, there's a small group of us that formed uh, in Los Angeles about 25 years ago, and uh, we are on the phone with each other every single week. We do an annual retreat. In fact, we've got one coming up in October where we get into each other's business, and we try to spur one another on to, to just being like Christ. Well... Uh, one of the guys in that group um, lives in New York City, uh, him and his family. Um, we had just moved there many years ago, and um, we had just gotten there, and he calls me up, and he's like, hey, man, my, my wife, his wife's an actress. He says, my, my wife's in this thing on Broadway, and we got two extra tickets, and, man, we'd love to give you two tickets. I'm like, let me just stop you right here. Man, we've been doing life for a lot of time, for a lot of years, and I, you just know where I stand on musicals. Is this a musical? Because... You know, I just, I'm not really into musicals. Either I want to go to a concert or I want to go to a play. I don't do both together. Sort of like when I go to church, I either uh, want to hear a preacher preach or a worship leader sing. I don't want to hear uh, a worship leader preach and I don't want to hear a preacher sing. Like, I don't want to mix those things. Stay in your lane. Um, anyways, uh, this is kind of a soapbox of mine. And um, he says, well, it's, it's a musical. And he told me the name of the musical and it was like, just brand new out. I didn't really know much about it, but I, I knew my wife is into those things, and so um, I decided to serve her uh, by dying to self, and um, we go to this musical, and man, it, um, it was Hamilton, and his wife, uh, Jesus-loving woman, uh, won the Tony Award. She was part of the original cast, and uh, we're sitting there that night kind of bobbing our heads and just blown away, just absolutely absolutely blown away. I, I was so blown away, I actually went home and uh, got the biography that inspired Hamilton. Uh, Chernow wrote a bi- biography on the life of Hamilton. I just remember reading through it and just being blown away just by the sheer volume of his work. I mean, here's a guy, um, he was in the Revolutionary War, he's one of the founding fathers, one of the architects of the Constitution, one of the architects of our financial institutions, first Secretary of the Treasury, wrote over 50 um, essays that would go into what's now called the Federalist uh, Papers. He was just kind of achieve, 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 and his biographer, Chernow, says where that came from is that Hamilton was ashamed of his past. Uh, he was ashamed of his pedigree, and so when he got to the United States as an immigrant, he said, um, he said to himself, I'm going to be known for my achievement. I'm going to be known for my performance. Um, and here was a guy who was just on this obsessive kind of frenetic pace to, to matter. He, he really wanted to make his mark. He was determined that he was not going to throw away his shot. Um, but anyways, he really wanted to matter, absolutely wanted to matter. 
You know, in a lot of ways, I think a little bit of Hamilton lives in all of us. I think all of us uh, living in this life, we, we want to matter. We, we've, we, we've got to drive. We, 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 we want to leave kind of our mark in this life. No, that doesn't mean we'll chase success idols, all of us. Some of us will. It doesn't mean we'll be on this frenetic pace like, like Hamilton was. But nonetheless, man, I, I think there's a drive in us to really want to get after what matters most. This is what our text is about. Um, th- these individuals, in a very unhealthy way, and we're going to speak to that in just a few moments, they come up to Jesus. They're simply known as the sons of Zebedee. Uh, we actually know from uh, another gospel that kind of gives an angle on this same uh, kind of episode in the life of Jesus that these two individuals that Matthew calls the sons, uh, sons of Zebedee, they're actually James and John. Uh, and their mother, most scholars tell us, is a woman by the name of Salome, who is actually the sister of Mary, who is the mother of of Jesus, which would make Salome Jesus's auntie, right? And so, again, this is just me reading the white spaces of the text. Maybe Salome, who is going to make this audacious request that Jesus, you hook my boys up, put them in the VIP section. Maybe she's thinking, I've got an in with Jesus, right? We, we kind of share DNA here. And so maybe as his aunt, I can make this bold request. And the text says, don't miss it, that she actually comes to Jesus kneeling. Now our text is originally written in a language called Greek, and the Greek word for kneeling is actually a word that's commonly translated as worship. So she comes to Jesus in the right way. She wants to leverage the familial ties that they have. She comes to Jesus uh, kneeling. She comes to Jesus worshiping him. She comes to him the right way, and she makes this request, and uh, I love it. Jesus says, no, are you crazy? You've lost your mind. No, this is not going to happen. I just want to stop right here and just send you a quick text message as we launch out into this sermon together. I I think a little bit of Salome lives in all of us. If you've been walking with God for a while and you've just kind of living um, uh, in relationship with him, I think we all know what it's like to have things that we're asking God for, that we're praying for on a consistent basis, that we are storming the gates of heaven and just saying, God, would you just please, would you just do this for me? And there are times when God actually says no. Now, here's our problem. Our problem, if you're like me and God is saying no, I I then kind of do this subconscious conscious checklist where I go, wait wait a minute, are you going to tell me no? Um, I'm actually serving in ministry. I'm actually living a sacrificial life. I'm trying to be generous. Um, uh, I'm on this amazing quiet time street, God. I'm reading the Bible. I'm working my Bible through the year plan. I mean, I'm just checking all these boxes. And here's the problem. I actually think that me being a good boy puts God in my debt, so he has to tell me yes. And what this text tells us is, is that our behavior does not put God in our debt. That God has the prerogative to say no. It actually teaches us that sometimes we can come to God the right way, but make the wrong requests. God, through Jesus, tells her no. Our text is dealing with this idea of significance, and and it's important that you hear me say this. Jesus is not against your desire to be significant or your desire to matter. He's not against your desire to to leave your mark. Why? Towards the end of our text, he says, look, if you want to be first, here's how you do it. Learn to be last. If you want to be great, learn to be the servant of all. Please notice, 
Jesus is not anti your desire to be great. Jesus is not anti your desire to be first. What he is against is the path you choose to get there. In other words, what Jesus is going to do for us is he is going to juxtapose for us, he's going to compare in contrast kind of two paradigms to significance. Look at it with me. The world's paradigm of significance, it begins with me. I I, want to just stop here. All of us, it was C.S. Lewis who said in his wonderful book, Mere Christianity, that the fountainhead to all sin is pride. That, as D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, that great 20th century London preacher said, "The the sin beneath every sin is pride. So I just want you to understand, pride has many faces, but all of us are prideful, narcissistic individuals. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Um, There's some very clear examples. I I don't even need to convince you of that. But timid people, so so some of you are naturally timid individuals. Uh, Timidity is actually a face of pride. Here's how that works. Uh, Someone does something to offend you, and, and it's just clear. We need to have a conversation. It's just clear. We need to talk about this. But you never get around to having the hard conversation. And the reason why you never get around to having the hard conversation is because um, you're more concerned about what they may think of you. You're more concerned about your feelings than their personal growth. That's pride. That That is pride. So you just stuffing it and going with the flow, that's arrogance. You are robbing someone of their chance to grow in Christ because of your own pride. So I just want you to see the baseline for worldly significance is me. It is me driving it. I want to live life on my terms. I want to experience fulfillment on my terms. I want to figure it out on my terms. What then happens next? I'm going to use power. I'm going to use authority. We're going to talk some about unfettered authority is manipulation. Some of you are master manipulators. I should say some of us are master manipulators. We we can go passive aggressive on you real quick. I can just kind of give you example after example after example. Why? Because I want to steer this thing towards me in the hope that I get status in some degree. Jesus says that is not the way of significance in the kingdom. The way of significance in the kingdom, the baseline is not me, it's Jesus, it's the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, Jaden is here, I remember Jaden and his brothers, I'd take them to school in the morning when they were, when they were little kids, i try to catechize uh, our, our kids, and we talk about the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I'm created for the glory of God. And what does it mean to glorify God? It means that my life is a telescope. Uh, To to glorify God means I make him bigger. I can't literally make God bigger, but but I want to bring, like a telescope, I want to bring the faraway objects of the universe. I want to bring God clearly into view by how I student, by how I parent, by how I friend, by how I work. Everything for me, the baseline, is the glory of God. What then happens on my road to significance, there's suffering, and not just suffering, but my response to it. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. And then there's this whole idea of servanthood, embracing the identity of servant. Jesus tells us this, when you go the way of the servant, you, you lose nothing, but you gain everything. 
When you go the way of the servant, it's counterintuitive. When you go the way of the servant, you lose nothing, but you gain everything. So Jesus' auntie comes up to him, and uh, she comes the right way. She's kneeling. Hey, Jesus, i uh, got my boys here with me. Um, make sure that you put, one, put them on the right hand, on the left hand. You know, I've always wanted to, 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 to preach this from the perspective of over-parenting, helicopter parenting. This is helicopter parenting. If you ever wondered what that looks like, helicopter parenting right here. It's not a 21st century phenomenon. It was back in the first century. So here is Salome, helicopter parenting. Give my kids the, the, the prime seats uh, in the kingdom. Jesus says, are you out of your mind? It's the idea of the Greek. And then he starts talking about the cup. Are you able to drink this cup that I'm to drink from? Now, if you're to study the Old Testament, you just kind of do a study on the cup. What does that mean? Uh, one of the primary usages of the cup, it, it's a symbol of God's wrath and judgment. Oftentimes we'll, we'll hear God talking about pouring out his wrath, taking his cup and pouring out his wrath. The idea there is I'm going to inflict suffering. There it is. So that when Jesus talks about the cup, he's talking about suffering. Uh, in the New Testament, the prominent place of the cup is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays multiple times, Lord, if there's any way possible, I want you to remove this cup from me. What is the cup there? It's the manner upon which he was to die. It is the idea of his suffering. It is the cross, which as the songwriter says, it is the emblem of suffering and shame. Um, here's what Jesus is saying. I'm a little bit concerned for you guys. And by the way, you should be concerned for any leader who occupies a position without having truly suffered. It's the, the most dangerous person in the world is the gifted charismatic person who hasn't been broken. That's dangerous. So Jesus says, you want the position, you don't want the process. Okay? Are you able to drink from my cup? See, oh man, this is why Hebrews 4 is so beautiful to me. Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says, um, we do not have a, white, a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He says, look, you can fly to Jesus. You're not going to get condemnation. You're not going to get worldly leadership. Why? Because he's suffered. See that? And so he's, he's like, they're like, yeah, we can drink the cup. And she's like, yep, and you will drink it. You will suffer. In Acts chapter 12, James is going to be the first apostle to be, to be martyred. He's going to be killed by the sword under Herod's leadership. Later on, John is going to be exiled to the island of Patmos. No, he's not going to die the death of a martyr. He's going to live to be about 100 years of age. But for many decades, he's going to wake up and just go, this ain't the life I anticipated. What, what James and John shows us is that there's all kinds of ways to suffer. And listen, if I were to pass the microphone around now, you all can share all your own stories of suffering. Some of you can talk about it. In fact, I, I talked to one of you all uh, right before the first service. Uh, individuals have been diagnosed with cancer and a three-year journey with cancer. It's suffering. Uh, some of you know what it's like to be terminated from jobs. Uh, some of you all, you, you know the horror of divorce and this individual betrayed you and cheated on you. That's, that's suffering. Others of you know economic hardships. Some of you, I, I talked to a couple after the first service, t t talking to me about their, their prodigal child suffering. Like we all have our cup to drink. We all know what it's like to absolutely, positively suffer. Now, 
Why is this a significant step in the, ro- in the road to significance in the kingdom? Here's why. Because if you study the scriptures, it is uncanny. Every godly leader that we have significant information on has always gone through suffering in life. It's almost as if the scriptures scream that brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. Brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. I grew up in the, on the south side of Atlanta. Um, I love going to amusement parks, although I, I hate roller coasters, go figure. Um, my wife will tell you she loves roller coasters. When we go to the amusement park together, I hold her purse while she has all the fun uh, in the world. Uh, um, amen. And so uh, growing up, man, we would go to Six Flags, and my favorite thing to do at Six Flags was right as the sun was setting, I'd love to buy one of those glow sticks. We've all, we all know what the glow sticks are, true to its name, it lights up. Um, and I didn't know it at the time, it wasn't until years later that I figured out what makes a glow stick work. Is there, there's a little capsule inside of it that actually has um, chemicals, and when that capsule gets broken, those chemicals get released, and light is able to emanate from that stick. And so that's why we would bend them, so that the capsule would be broken, and so the glow stick could function according to the manufacturer's purpose. Brokenness is a prerequisite for usefulness. L- l- let me just give you a couple examples of this in the scripture. One is Joseph, the longest narrative in the book of Genesis. When we first meet Joseph, he's just this pompous, arrogant guy. Scholars put him somewhere around the age of 17. He's bragging to his brothers about all these dreams, about how they're going to bow down to him. They can't stand him. They don't want to be around him. So they end up selling him into slavery for the next 13 years. Scholars tell us Joseph is uh, in slavery. He's lied on in Potiphar's house. Uh, Later on, he's forgotten about in prison, broken, broken, broken. And then what happens to him? He emerges, and towards the end of his life, what do we meet? A, A compassionate, empathetic person that his family now enjoys so much so that his family is going to move from a faraway country to be with him in the winter years of his life. He's just a broken individual who now emerges as second in command. Or take David. Just look at David. Most scholars tell us that from the time that just look at David. Most scholars tell us that from the time he's anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16 till the time he sits on the throne, 15 years go by. What is he doing in those 15 years? He's experiencing brokenness. He's hanging out in caves, he's running for his life, he's composing psalms, just brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. Now, l- let me just say this to you, and I'll, I'll move on to the next point. The issue for us is not suffering. You don't have to, you don't have to pray for suffering, okay? Um, that's going to come. James says, count it all joy, not if you encounter various trials, but when. It's coming. It's coming. So the issue is not suffering, it's our response. When suffering comes, we have one of two responses. Either we're going to be wounded or we're going to be broken. Here's what happens. Here's here's wounded people. Suffering happens and what happens? They lose sight of God and they cave in on self. Why is this happening to me? Can't believe this. It's me, 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 me. And so instead of turning to God... Instead of leaning into him, instead of pressing into him like we see David doing during the the, uh, Psalms, it's now all about me and I'm I'm getting so upset and I'm holding on to my rights and my faith is the foundations are almost gone. 
on. And, and, and now God becomes small, people become big, and I'm turning on people. And it's just this awful thing. And you can always tell wounded person because a person who emerges from that, the issue was never dealt with. It, it, what God was trying to do was frustrated because I, I didn't walk in faith. I walked in fear and I held on to my rights and wounded people, they tend to be aloof. You can only get so close to wounded people because something in you goes, man, I was betrayed. Uh, I was wrong. This thing happened. I'll never let people get that close to me again. So now you're aloof. What's the next step? Uh, Wounded people tend to be fear-based and controlling. I'm going to control this. Something happened, man. It it took my breath away. And so, man, that's just never going to happen. So let me just control my environment. And we all understand that control is a myth. By the way, one of the ways in which you know you're a controlling person is you are given to fits of worry and anxiety. Thirdly, wounded people tend to be bitter people. There's just a a root of bitterness there, man. There's not the fullness of joy. Instead, there's broken people. God wants us to be broken. Man, something happens to me, and and, and man, the foundations of my faith, sure, it's rattled, and I'm I'm shedding real tears, Um, but I'm just leaning in. I'm just leaning in. Look, man, I'll... I mean, I'll, t- I'll, sh- I'll share this with you guys. I mean, 2020 was no walk in the park for any of us, but especially for our family. It was just tough. And, and, and what happened prior to the events of 2020 is David Platt sends me a text message. David Platt and I aren't, aren't we're, I don't want to picture us as friends, but um, we, we've, we've got a relationship. And right before just all the madness of 2020 happened in my life, David Platt sends me a text just going, man, uh, I've been praying for you, and uh, I just sense the Lord saying you're about to go through a lot of stuff. Um, and when David Platt says that to you, you, you kind of pause. Um, and um, three other people said the same thing to me, and they all gave the same scripture, Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 just talks about abiding in the shelter of God in the shadow of the Most High. And so when stuff started happening to me, I had to make a choice. Either I'm going to cave in and turn inward, or I'm going to look to the hills from whence cometh my help, knowing my help comes from the Lord. And just to acknowledge, there's some things that God wanted to break in me. That's all of us. So when suffering happens, stop. God, whatever you're trying to do in me, in this process, I'm going to trust you. Trust you. And what happens? Watch, watch what happens. Broken people who allow God to deal with the issues emerge from that typically the most empathetic people. Broken people fly to suffering people. Man, we've been there. I'm not going to be aloof. I'm going to engage. I'm going to walk in because I know the joy of the Lord in the valley. Secondly, broken people aren't fear-based. They're faith-based. They're not controlling. They're empowering. Look, one of the things suffering does when you go through it the right way, you, you just understand real quickly, I can't contr- I don't, I'm not as in much of a control as I thought I was. Control is an illusion. 
Third, broken people emerge not bitter. They emerge better. There's just a sweetness to them. There's just a sweetness to people who've been in the bunker. They've leaned into Jesus. I I, want to be around them. I just want to be around them. So can I ask you, are you wounded or broken? Are you wounded or broken? Now watch this. As we round second and head for third. Watch this. Hey, Jesus, put us in the VIP section. Jesus says, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to drink the cup of suffering, but you haven't done it yet. And notice what he does. He now talks about worldly usages of power and authority. So he's talking to these two individuals. They want to be on his right and left. The other ten hear it. They're indignant. The reason why they're indignant, I believe, is because they're tapping in on some personal envy and jealousy that these other ten have. How dare they? And Jesus says, nope, i got to nip this all in the bud. He's talking to church people, and not just church people, but future leaders of the church. And he says, here's how I want you to steward things. Don't be like the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they exercise dominion. They exercise power. They exercise authority over others. Now, let me just stop right here and say this. Power and authority is not the issue. It's not wrong to use power and authority. Jesus used power and authority. He used power and authority over the demons uh, in the Great Commission. He says, look, all authority has been given unto me. Uh, We're called to walk in power and authority. We're called to do that. The problem is not power and authority. What Jesus is speaking to, the way the world exercises power and authority, he's talking about unfettered power and authority. Where I use my power and authority... And it's just a mark of my leadership to coerce people into doing things that I want them to do. Jesus says, don't be like that. Don't lead that way. So the issue is not power and authority, it's the dosage of it. So it's sort of like, man, if I get sick and I go to see Conca Man and Conca, you know, writes me a prescription for some strong medication, what's the first thing I'm going to do? I'm going to look at the dosage. Why? Because that strong medication used in the right dosage has the power to heal. But if I use too much of it and I go beyond the dosage, that thing now has the power to harm. It's all about the dosage. That's what Jesus is getting at here. What is power? Look at it with me. Power means the ability to force or coerce someone to do your will even if they would choose not to because of your position and might. It's the power to coerce people. Listen, from a parental perspective, Jaden is here. I don't, um, I'll just, you know, when he was a little boy, Jaden didn't like holding my hand uh, crossing the busy streets of New York City. It would have been bad parenting to let him do what he wanted to do. So what did I do in those moments? I used a little bit of power. I, I squeezed his hand tighter. You ain't, getting, you ain't getting out of it. That was an appropriate dosage of power. But now... Here's what I'm learning in parenting teenagers and young adults. The older they get, um, the less of a prophet I need to be and the more of a pastor I need to be. What what does that mean? I can't, if I want a relationship with my kids as they get older, I'm going to have to dial back the power. Now, there's still times to do it, right? I'm not having a discussion with you about whether or not we're coming to church. 
You live in my house? You like eating my food? <laughs> okay. So there are times where we have to do that. But we dial it back. What is authority? Authority is the skill of getting people to willingly do your will because of your personal influence. It's using my influence. And there's been times I've said to Jaden and his brothers, listen, guys, uh, the rule in our house is I'll buy you the car and I'll pay the insurance, but you've got to have a job. You've got to have X amount of dollars saved up in the bank account because I ain't putting gas in it. What does this do? It is, it is infl- it's using my authority to influence them, to, to motivate them to get a job. But now, if I enter into negotiations on every single thing, I'm not raising a kid. I'm raising Pavlov's dog. Unfettered authority, watch it now, is manipulation. You with me on that? Jesus says there's not, we, we can't do both. Instead, what he says, what we need here is a restrictor plate. Now, I'm in Alamance County, so I hope this illustration will work. Um, you know, I lived in Charlotte for a while, and we got into NASCAR. Um, yes. Um, chocolate people in NASCAR isn't always a great fit, but uh, we, we, um, I, I watched a little bit of NASCAR. NASCAR is, uh, is about power. I mean, these powerful cars going incredibly fast, but did you know uh, these, these cars don't go as fast as they could? They have something called a restrictor plate on it. The restrictor plate is exactly as it sounds. It keeps them from going as fast as they could. Why? Because if these cars went as fast as they could, they would do harm to themselves, harm to the driver, harm to other drivers. And so for the good of everyone, let's put a restrictor plate. Now, here's the point. Jesus says, you have power, you have authority, but we've got to put a restrictor plate on it. It's called servanthood. What is servanthood? Servanthood is an other's orientation of life that says, I want to do what's best for you. And when my orientation in life is I am committed to you for you to, for you to absolutely flourish and to be the best you, now I'm going to make sure that if I have to use power and authority, I'm using it in the right dosage because I want to see you soar. If it's about me, I'm just going to unleash on you. But if it's about you, it's going to be in the right dosage. It's incredibly important that you understand this. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Hey, hey, husbands, let me speak to you for a minute. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about our marriage to our wives. And it, it really relates the gospel to our marriage. One of the things it says, that husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then he goes on to say that there's coming a day where Christ is going to present us spotless. Now, right now, we ain't spotless. We ain't sinless. But there's coming a day where I will be given a new glorified body, hopefully with a lot faster metabolism, and I will stand in the presence of the Lord completely holy, completely spotless. Now, what has taken me from being full of sin to being spotless? The leadership of Jesus Christ in my life. The servant leadership of Jesus Christ in my life. I'm getting better. I'm increasing in the journey of sanctification because of his leadership in my life. Here's what Paul is saying as he's trying to make this a metaphor of marriage. Here's what he's saying, husbands. Your wives should be able to look through the rearview mirror of their marriage with you and say, I am a better woman, a better wife, a better person because of your servant leadership in my life. Wow. It is, it is a husband saying, how can I position my wife so that she flourishes? Who don't want to be under that kind of leadership? See, I think the feminist movement, they're not bristling against servant leadership. They're bristling against Gentile 
worldly leadership. Parenting, it works the same way. I gave you examples. Let, let, let me give you another example. It should be this way in the church. At Alamance Campus, I, I, I want to encourage you guys, lead the charge. When we talk about servanthood at the summit, I want to be sitting around the table and go, man, you got to go to Alamance cam- uh, Campus because that's where they're modeling it. Now, in order for this to happen, you're going to have to go to war with something called what I call a cruise ship mentality. On a cruise ship, it's all about you. It's all about consumerism. Um, on a cruise ship, you complain about the food. I'll never forget our family. Gosh, I'm telling a lot of Jaden stories. But our, our, our family, um, we, uh, this is years ago. We went on a cruise, and Jade must have been like seven, eight, nine years old. And uh, he's heard me tell this story publicly before. But he came up to me and says, hey, hey Dad, uh, I need some money for some ice cream. He says, no, you don't. Let me bless your life, son. <laughs> All of it is already included. And you can just kind of see the seven, eight, nine-year-old kind of wheels turning. Wait a minute. I can go and get as much ice cream as I'd like. And I don't have to bring any money with me. That's right. But I wouldn't eat a whole lot of it. But I went ahead and watched him eat about a half a dozen ice cream cones back to back to back to back to back. And his tummy hurt and uh, our little room didn't smell too pleasant. Um, But that's cruise ship mentality. I can complain about the food. I can complain about the accommodations because on a cruise ship, it's all about me. But on a battleship, no one complains about the food. No one complains about the sleeping arrangements. Why? Because on a battleship, it's not about you. It's about the mission. I want to encourage you, Alamance County. This ain't a cruise ship. It's a battleship. And what we're going to need is an army of servants, others-oriented leaders who are saying, how can we engage for the good of the mission and not use worldly power? Finally, as we wrap up, here's Jesus. He's saying, listen, let me give you a new paradigm for for significance. I, I want you to be people who respond appropriately to suffering. I want you to be people who embrace the restrictor plate of servanthood who take on an other's orientation to life. I want you to be those people. And he ends by saying, look at what he says beginning in verse 26. He ends by saying, it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know what he's saying? I'm your example. If anybody had the right to hold on to status... It's me. But here I am, Philippians chapter 2, that though he was in the form of God, did not equate equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he humbled himself by becoming a a, a servant. I'm your example. And what did he do? He embraced suffering on the cross. He responded well. He was wounded for our transgressions. What did he do? He embraced the form of a servant. He washed the feet of his disciples, John chapter 13. Jesus says, I'm your example. I'm your example. He he says, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom, as a ransom for many. The the idea of ransom, it communicates two ideas. One, it it, it communicates or implies the idea that at one point you were in bondage. The idea of ransom means to set free. Listen, if you are not in relationship with Christ, if you are not walking with Christ, you are in bondage to bad leadership. 
Satan, sin, and idols. What does Jesus do? He had us in mind. He had our good in mind. He set us free. And because of that second idea of ransom, it should inspire greater degrees of servanthood. I'll never forget, end of my freshman year, it's summertime. I'm at home in Atlanta on a break. And uh, my dad says to me, hey, son, I need you to cut the grass. I'm a big-time college uh, student. I got my first year on my belt. Dad says, hey, need you to cut the grass. I says, I don't do grass. He says, do you do tuition? I said, lawnmower, is that still in the, the garage? And so I got to go. Here's his idea. Son, I'm making sacrifices for you. And that, that encouraged me to embrace servanthood. Or imagine, uh, I see you at a restaurant, and uh, the bill comes to your table, and, um, and you, you fish in your pockets to pay the bill, but the waiter says, hey, hey, don't worry about it. The gentleman over there pointing to me has already paid for your bill. Your bill's around 80 bucks. Um, how are you going to respond? You're probably going to tell me thank you. Imagine a couple months later, my wife and I call you on the phone. You say, man, we've been praying, and we just feel led of the Lord. We hear you're in credit card debt. We want to pay off all your credit card bills, thousands of dollars worth. How do you respond? You'll probably do more than tell me thank you. You'll probably look for some way to express a greater sense of gratitude. But now imagine a couple months later, my wife and I knock on your door and we say, hey, look, we've been praying. We just feel led of the Lord. This is totally fictitious, by the way. Uh, we feel led of the Lord to pay off your mortgage. Chances are you're going to do more than tell me thank you. Chances are you're going to do more than offer to babysit our kids. Chances are... Every time I see you for the rest of your life, you're going to be filled with gratitude and look for some ways to express that gratitude towards us. What are we saying here? The greater the act of service, the greater the expression of gratitude and servanthood. This is the strongest thing I'll say to you as, as we close. If you ain't serving, you don't get the gospel. I just don't know how to say it any more clearly than that. If, if you're functioning as if you're the sun and everybody else should orbit around you and the preaching's got to be this way and things have just got to be set up just right and, man, uh, my, my, your, your spouse has got to behave a certain way and your kid's got to do all that. If that's how you function, like every day for you is a, is a day trip to the spa, That is not remotely like Christ. Jesus came as a servant. So are you on a cruise ship? Or are you on a battleship? This isn't guilting you. I just want you to see the, the basic paradigm of the gospel. So, Father, I thank you. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Thank you that, Jesus, you did not come as a Roman centurion. You did not come as a Roman senator. You did not come as a Roman emperor. You came as a servant. So, Lord, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? We love to be catered to. 
So I pray that our inspiration for this is not guilt, not shame. Guilt and shame can't change the fundamental structures of our hearts. But I pray that our motivation would be the beauty of servant Jesus and the glories of the gospel. That you have paid for every sin we've ever committed, are committing, and will ever commit. You've done more than pay our mortgage. You've paid our our mortgage into heaven. And no, this isn't about paying you back. We can never pay you back. But we can say thank you. And we do that through servanthood. In Jesus' name. Amen.